Hello and welcome to Coffeehouse Questions. This is Ryan Polly, and this is part two of a discussion that we started last week with Paul Gould on his book, Cultural Apologetics, Renewing the Christian Voice, Conscience, and Imagination in a Disenchanted World. And in case you missed it, uh, Dr. Paul Gould is a professor at Oklahoma Baptist University. He's also a visiting fellow at Henry Center of the- for Theological Understanding at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School and has his PhD in philosophy from Purdue University and a master's from Talbot. School of Theology. And so, Paul, thanks for uh, spending another 30 minutes with me here. You're welcome. It's great to be with you. So we left off last uh, last part just discussing really the kind of plausibility structures and, and really helping people see Jesus and really understanding the person. Um, and I think that's so important of, of just kind of figuring out who they are and where yeah. they're coming from uh, when we're doing this. And so we recognize, though, in your book, Cultural Apologetics, is really we're, we're trying to imp- impact and influence the culture. And we have to know what's going on in this culture. What are the influences of our culture? And actually, in preparation for this, I threw out a little uh, survey on my Instagram saying, how well do you think Christians know the culture that they are trying to engage and of the people that responded, uh, the average answer was about a three out of 10, that wow. Christians really yeah. don't understand the culture they're trying to engage. So so yeah. what is going on with the culture uh, that, that we're living in right now? What are some of the major influences uh, that are affecting it? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. I love that you did that. Uh, uh, three out of 10 sounds pretty high. <laughs> so <laughs> just from teaching and, and knowing that students are very not aware of things. Um, that sounds like a pretty high, high even. Yeah, I think, uh, okay, what, what's going on in the culture? Oh, man. Um, I think, so in the book, just because I think this is such a helpful framing thing, I, I, I gave three words, and so you'll, you'll know where I'm headed here. I, I gave three words to answer Newbegin's question. If you remember from last week, uh, Leslie Newbegin asked this great question, you know, um, how can we have a genuine missionary encounter with the whole way of perceiving, thinking, and living that we call modern Western culture and the gospel? And so I, so to describe the dominant way of thinking, or I'm sorry, perceiving in the world, the word that I would use is disenchanted. So here's some ways to understand our, our Athens, our culture, at least in the West. Um, the dominant way of perceiving is disenchanted. And what I mean by that is that we no longer see the world, and I mean this for Christians as well, we no longer see the world in its proper light. So, for example, we use words like the world is ordinary or it's everyday or it's mundane. Uh, but that's actually not the way the world is, right? The world is – biblically, the world is a gift, and it's sacred, and it's holy, and it's mysterious, and all these things. Um, and so that's the first word is disenchanted, and we can unpack that even more. That's a key phrase that I work with in the book. Uh, the question, you know, what is the culture's dominant way of thinking? In a word, the word would be sensate, but that's just, it just means we're fixed on the sensory, the material, the physical. You know, I love, uh, if you, your listeners are familiar with uh, uh, C.S. Lewis's, uh, you know, devilish little book, Screw Tape Letters, uh, where you have a senior devil, fictitious account, senior devil, uh, you know, tutoring a junior devil. And in the very first letter, the senior devil says to the junior devil, you know, your business is to fix their mind on the stream of immediate sensual experience. You know, and that that's a great description of our world right now, fixed on 
the immediate sense, uh, you know, uh, stream of sensual experience. And actually, in, in the in the book, he goes, you know, don't awaken their minds, and uh, because then they'll pertain to universal matters, matters, and they'll realize they can win on the the enemy's ground, which is our, our you know reason. Um, and so, yeah, we're fixed on the physical, the sensate, the sensory. Um, and then, in terms of that, you know, what is our dominant way of living? In a word, it would be hedonism. And again, that's just the idea that we go from one bite-sized packet of pleasure to another bite-sized packet of pleasure. As again, Lewis would put it, uh, you know, we're addicted to Turkish delights, if you remember that from the line, The Witch in the Wardrobe. And, and that's kind of how – those are maybe some quick quick words that help uh, us understand just a little bit about where folks are in culture. Of course, we can go – you know, we can go a lot deeper, but that's at least a good starting starting point. Yeah, and so when, when you talked about this idea of how we perceive the world and that we are disenchanted – uh, in kind of a response to it, you, you discuss this idea that we have this longing for truth yeah. and that as Christians, then we then give reason in, in response. Um, you know, but I, I, when I read that, I, I went, you know, I do think that's true, but how many people actually care about this longing for truth that they have inside of them? Uh, and these these kind of longings, you know, when I, when I pointed out, you know, I think, man, there's so many people that are just so apathetic, that, yeah, you know, whatever, I know I want justice, but, you know, it's, you know, that's never going to happen. So I'm over it. I'm just about, I'm just going to have fun. Yeah. You know, how do you really get people to truly recognize and acknowledge this longing that they have inside of them? Yeah, that's great. Well, uh, this is part of my positive proposal in the book, actually, is that we've got to, as, as a cultural apologist, we've got to shock people into engagement with reality. And so think of, think of it this way. Think of the set of desires that every person has. Like think of your own life and, you know, the set of your desires or longings. Um, think of it as an inverted triangle, right? So at the top of that triangle, you have like your surface desires. And then as you drill down to the bottom, you have deeper desires. And then right at the bottom, you have, of course, the heart's deepest desire. As Augustine would say, our hearts are restless until, until they find rest in you. So the deepest desire of every human heart is the longing for God, you know, is, is, is relationship with God, is union with God. But right above that deepest desire, the, you know, the, the bottom of the triangle, I would put all those other desires that we like to talk about, goodness, the, the longing for goodness, truth, beauty, justice, love, and, and things like that. Um, so they're right above the deepest desire, and they're innate in every human heart. And so part of so so it's not you're right. The world has deadened desire, right? We don't use our minds, and so we're not awakened to the longing for truth. We don't um, you know seek justice or live whole, and so our minds are not we're not awakened to that longing for goodness. But part of what we can do is reawaken those, and I, I offer lots of ideas on how to do that. Uh, but that's part of the cultural apologist's job in a world full of apathy. Our job is partly to poke and prod and reawaken these things that we know are already there because this is how God has made each of us. So, uh, yeah, I can say a lot more, but that's the, the big picture um, idea is that they are there. And part of our job is to reawaken them. And we do that through, you know, the stories we tell, the music that we make, uh, the arguments that we give, the life that we live, the kind of, you know, uh, whole, the wholeness that we have is in things like that. So those are some of the ways that we do it. And, and I know one one of the you know even apologetic argument for this is kind of C.S. Lewis, Lewis's uh, argument for desire, and I and I haven't really gone over that much on the show. Could you maybe say a few yeah. things about this argument for desire that that Lewis kind of presented? Yeah, that's uh, it's one of my favorite des- uh, arguments actually for God. Um, it, it, and Lewis, of course, was fascinated with desire. Um, he thought that, you know, uh, if you read his autobiography, Surprised by Joy, he talks about how at a very early age, at age six, actually, he was exposed to, to 
deep beauty and that that it awoken something within him and it set him on a journey that terminated you know in his 30s when he found Christ um but he talked about reading uh fa- fairy fairy stories at, at 16 George McDonald's Fantasties that awoke he said it rebaptized his imagination um and so everything he loved and thought dear was in the land of poetry and fairy stories but then his you know logic professor was telling him there was no god and so everything that he thought was true was cold and calculating and and so he talks about how he had these two hemispheres of his mind. And it wasn't until he'd found that Christianity was true myth, as he called it, or true story, um, that he was able to basically unite those two hemispheres. So Lewis was fascinated with Christianity as the perfect blend of reason and romance. Um, so within that, then, he get, he's, he in a lot of his works, he would advance what's called the argument from desire. And it wasn't original to him, but he popularized it in a lot of ways. You can see this... Um, for your listeners, if you're interested, there's three places that uh, he, he talks about it prominently. One is the chapter in Mere Christianity on Hope. Uh, the second place is the essay, The Weight of Glory. And the third place is actually the afterword to his um, first book that he wrote after he became a Christian that, that's partly autobiographical called A Pilgrim's Regress. He has an afterword where he interacts with the argument from desire as well. But it basically goes like this. Or actually, here's a quote, one of my favorite quotes from the chapter on hope in Mere Christianity. You can kind of see how the argument would go. But he basically says, if he finds something within ourselves that nothing in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that you're made for another world. So that's basically, you know, um, the argument is, hey, we have these desires, natural desires in our heart. They're things that can't be satisfied in this world, but every natural desire has an object that satisfies it. Therefore, there's some object beyond this world. That object is God. You know, and I actually formalize that and and kind of unpack that and argue for it in the book, but that's the the gist of what's going on there. And have you seen this argument be persuasive? Um, it, it, It seems to be more... You know, um, I don't know the right word I'm looking for, but uh, you know, it's maybe not as concrete as a yeah. Kalam argument or something with more feelings. With, you know, yeah. yeah, you know, it's more feeling based. And it's like, well, you just feel like that there's something that 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 satisfies yeah. your desire, but you can't actually know that there's something that satisfies this desire. That's right. Yeah, um, you know, it's interesting. So one of the things that JP taught me early, and maybe you've heard him say it, is that if we want to be good thinkers, we need to learn to make distinctions, and then if we want to be good teachers, we need to learn to teach distinctions. And I think with the argument from desire, when you make some key distinctions uh, about what Lewis, for example, meant by a natural desire as opposed to an artificial desire, and what Lewis meant by the transcendent desire versus you know the surf desires or other desires, uh, the argument is surprisingly strong, actually. Um, <clears throat> you know, yeah, and so the, the premises, if you set them out, the way that I formulate it in the book, there's basically three key premises that you need to defend. And arguably, every one of those premises, when you make those critical distinctions to understand what we're talking about, surprisingly are stronger than you might think at first approach. So yeah, will it convince everyone? Uh, uh, probably not. Uh, but you know, no argument convinces everyone. But is yeah. it useful? Is it helpful? Especially in an age where we're so driven by our desires? Yeah, it's really interesting. Because what it does, I love like in the Gospel of John, you know, the first thing that Jesus says, you know, is not what do you believe, Andrew, but what do you want? You know, mm. and this is such a great question uh, for us. And that's why I love it. Is Is it in some ways it goes, you know, it doesn't run around, you know, the logic chopping, which I love to do, by the way, and I think we should do that well. But it doesn't run around that because suddenly we're thinking about our own hearts and, and the set of our desires and just one particular desire. And maybe we're not aware of it, but when we start to talk and give an argument, people start to realize, wait a minute, I see that in my own heart. They might not. And that's part of the problem with it sometimes, but we can help there. 
Yeah. And like I said, this is one argument that I haven't spent that much time in. And, you know, I I don't formulate it very well. I I mention it from time to time when I'm with my students. But I I did have one student, I think it does relate to the argument where, where we went over this idea of, you know, what is true justice and the fact that we desire justice to take place. We, we want there to be justice. And when there's not fairness, when we, we get mad about it, and maybe that's because there is something inside of us, that there is true justice coming from God that will satisfy it. And we are built for that. And that's why we want it. And that to him was something I didn't realize it till later, later on, he said, you know, that idea of justice was really impactful that, you know, in, in him trying to understand this idea of Christianity and, and still not a Christian, but really like that, that's a point of this yeah. idea of justice that we would desire. And so, you know, that th- th- it hits home for different people. Yeah. And right? so, so here, we use it in a, a range of arguments, yeah. you know, they're here, all persuasive different amounts. Yeah. Here's the beauty of it. So go back to that triangle, you know, again, the inverted triangle where you have our deepest desire for God at the bottom, but then right above it, you have these, these deep desires for goodness, truth, beauty, love, justice. And so like maybe people aren't aware of that deepest desire of the heart. Um, that's okay. Go up one stage. Cause actually, uh, Lewis in The Weight of Glory, he does the argument from desire, but he focuses on beauty. So he goes above the deepest desire. In, in the chapter on hope, he focuses on the deepest desire. Um, in chapter, the chapter on heaven and the problem of pain, he talks about all those deep desires right above the deepest desire. And so you're right. I think that that's exactly right. People, they might not see that deep, deep, deepest longing, but they do want truth. Or if they don't want truth, if they don't know that, they do want justice. And if they don't know that, they do want beauty, you know, or they want love. And those are right above it. And you can run these same arguments for desire um, for any of those and and get the same result. So moving along, you talked about, you know, how does our culture think and that we're sensate. And to this, you kind of, uh, you gave the, uh, the response of, you know, this longing that we have for goodness, uh, and the response is our conscience. And so uh, how does our longing for goodness there? What do you mean by goodness in a response to uh, a culture of how we think? Yeah, I parse out our longing for goodness into three sub longings in the book. Um, uh, so our longing for goodness is composed of our longing to become whole. So, for example, we just we want to have all our thinkings and willings and, you know, belief all headed in the right direction. We want to be we don't want to be fragmented. So our longing for wholeness. Number two, our longing for justice. You know, we want to see a world made right. And then number three, our longing for significance, that we want to live a life that matters. And so that, that's what I'm thinking about with the longing for justice. And of course, walking that plank of the conscience would involve, as a cultural apologist, would involve being a certain kind of person, you know, that's pursuing Christ and wholeness, uh, you know, seeking justice, as Micah, what is it, 718 says, you know, living justly, seeking mercy and so on. Um, and then living for a story greater than self, you know, that these things actually, I think they pull people out of their own lives and help us see that there is a story that's alive and well. And so that's what I'm thinking about there uh, okay. on that. And then the idea of how we live, uh, talking about this hedonistic view uh, and this longing for beauty that we have and the imagination and the Christian imagination. And yeah. you, you talk about this, of the imagination is focusing on beauty and, and theater and dance and art. And how, how can Christians do a better job at the... I mean, well, maybe I should ask this question. Uh, do you think Christians are doing a good job focusing on the beauty and the arts and, and theater and dance in the first place? Yeah. Um, I, think, I think I'm super encouraged with 
what Christians are doing at the moment. Uh, there's some really, I think, excellent revival uh, and recapturing of the arts and the beauty and the imagination in the Christian tradition. I'm thinking of people like Andrew Peterson and the Rabbit Room and the stuff that he's doing. I'm thinking of, uh, for example, the Anselm Society, which is uh, out of for, uh, Colorado Springs and the kinds of things they're doing where they're recapturing the arts for the church and the idea of doing theology through the arts. Um, so I'm encouraged by a lot of that. I will say, though, historically, that um, the church has beauty has been in exile in the church, I think, especially in evangelicalism. And so, um, you know, we're kind of confused on what beauty is and the importance of it in our lives. And so many of our churches are multi-purpose buildings and we worship in bland, uh, you know, gymnasiums and and it doesn't activate our hearts. It doesn't activate our sense of beauty in a way that I think, uh, you know, a gothic, I don't know, you know, chapel wood or something like that. And so I think we're doing well, but I think we have a long way to go as well. In this kind of the beauty and the arts, uh, I mean, I personally, I think of my experience of, of, you know, if you were an artist, if you were a creative, you know, maybe you played on the worship team and that's about Mm -hmm. it. Um, and I know that there, you know, I even had one student who was really upset because he's a movie producer. He's, yeah. you know, really focused on on just, you know, the arts and, and movies and animation and everything and just said, you know, there's not a place for me in Christianity. Yeah. And and how, mm-hmm. how kind of that fits in. And so uh, what do we say to the creative individual Man, in the church? Yeah, that's, uh, it's, it hurts to hear that. Um, I, I would just say to him and to those like him that we need, you know, the church needs you. The church needs artists, you know, and the art and and. Artists need the church. Uh, we need, you know, both, both the, they need the church and we need them. And so we've just got to affirm, you know, it's just the idea of, of calling that God has created each of us. You know, we're not all, you know, to use a metaphor, the body, we're not all eyes, we're not all arms, we're not all elbows. God has created and many of us to be creatives and to uh, write poetry and to write stories and, and to make movies and and to tell a better story. And we've got to affirm them because, again, like everything, we own it, right? Art and beauty belongs to us. The source is Christ. Um, And so when we, you know, separate that stuff out from the so-called spiritual disciplines, you know, number one, we're falling into that sacred secular split. And number two, we're just not, we're, we're, we're missing an opportunity to affirm a calling that is good and valuable and so important for the sake of the gospel too. So yeah, I would just say we, we need to affirm and really support them as best we can. What, what would you then say to the church of, of how to improve and bring in the creatives as well as an aspect of beauty to, to, to a pastor that's listening here? I would say um, I would encourage them, even in, in my book, I unpack Exodus 31 and, and uh, God's call to Moses to build the tabernacle. And, you know, God calls uh, actually in names to the artist by name. Uh, and it's the first time you read in scripture that someone is filled with the Holy Spirit. And there in the Old Testament that the idea is that they're, they're empowered to do the thing that God wants them to do. But what's so interesting is you look at Exodus 31 and the tabernacle. What you see there is that God cares about beauty. And in fact, the tabernacle is is fashioned as a reminder of Eden and not just a reminder of Eden and the deep beauty there, the beauty, order and abundance that we had there. But it also is a reminder of our future, um, you know, where our lives will be uh, in, with full of beauty and order and abundance. And so I would just say um, cultivate a theology of beauty 
and maybe start with my chapter um, and uh, folks like David Taylor, who is writing on theology and the arts in the church, uh, as well as Andrew Peterson. He's got a book that comes out. Uh, it might even be out already on creativity and art in the church. And so I would just encourage him to start listening to the dialogue um, and realizing that this is a, a rich stream of Christian thought um, that we've lost, but we've got to recapture. Okay. Now, one last category of people, uh, and that would be the one that I fall in, yeah. uh, who is not a creative, who has no artistic skills, who has no uh, imagination in that sense. Uh, how can people like me uh, help focus on the imagination and on beauty and culture yeah. when that's it comes so difficult? Yeah, well, here's the thing is you are, actually, uh, because um, if you think about it, you know, Genesis 1, God... What is God doing in Genesis 1? He's creating and he's cultivating the good, the true, and the beautiful, right? He's putting order and abundance and boundaries and delineating and defining. And then he creates man and women in the, in the image of a creating and cultivating God. And so part of what it means to be created in the image of God is that we too are makers and creators of the good, the true, and the beautiful. And so I would just say, yeah, you're right. Not all of us are called to like do art for like our money, you know, profession, <laughs> but you can incorporate it in the things that you do, whether it's, you know, the, the teaching, the PowerPoint presentation that you do, or, or, you know, the, the mowing of your lawn or the making of that tomato sandwich or, or, uh, you know, the everyday beauty that we all have, like do, do things with beauty in mind, um, to the level of our ability. And so that's been a real challenge for me too. Like I'm not super creative, but I, I'm actually realizing I have more creative juice than I realize. And I think that's probably true for all of us, right? That God, cause God has created us to be people who, who are nourished on the good, the true and the beautiful. And then, and then, you know, nourish others with that. So, yeah. yeah so my, yeah, my focus has always been just helping students recognize uh, yeah. the importance of this and, right. you know, showing movie clips in my talk on good. entertainment, showing movie clips and, mm -hmm. you know, having them recognize what is true here. What is it yeah. saying is good? What is beautiful? And, and I think, you know, what we, we you know, uh, maybe, maybe I'm wrong on this, but, you know, it seems like, you know, Hollywood focuses on entertaining. They don't necessarily care about truth or, you know, what's good. And, you know, Christians oftentimes focus on, well, what is good yeah, yeah. And, and kind of maybe in what or maybe even just what's true. It's true. And, yeah. you know, we presented Jesus in this movie and therefore it's a good movie and it's beautiful. And it's like, man, you know, we should be the best movie producers. Right. We should be the best songwriters. It's mm -hmm. really grabbing that heart and that deepest longing and desire that we have is what should come out uh, from that. And just yeah. we have that ability. That's right. Uh, we need to go after it. Now, you, you also talk about, you know, okay, so with reason, we are focusing on truth. And so, you know, the, the logic and the evidence and all that kind of comes out. Um, and you go through, um, actually, I'm going to skip that. I'm running out of time. Okay. Um, this is so good. Uh, now, so you, we, we've kind of diagnosed the culture a little bit. We, we've seen the disenchantment of our culture and, and kind of uh, what are some of the, maybe let me ask this really quick before we move on, is what are some of the culture shaping institutions uh, that you kind of talk about? Yeah. Um, yeah. And like we said in the, the first part, um, I think a nice way to categorize it is re with respect to goodness, truth and beauty. You know, the university for truth, um, the arts for beauty and then the city for goodness. And within the city, that includes uh, clearly uh, the government, clearly uh, politics and law and then the market. So, you know, Madison Avenue, Wall Street and so on. So helping our students then recognize and say, hey, look, these these places, the university, the arts, yeah. Hollywood, you know, government and whatnot, these are shaping the way we think about money, the way we think about sexuality, the way we think about the world, whether we like it or not. 
we need to be aware of this, right? And, and training them to kind of keep their eyes open a little bit. And so maybe is there a short way that we, we do that? Yeah, some of that faded out because of our internet connection. But um, okay. what, what I would say is, so if that's how culture is shaped, well, we need to have a, a seat at the table in all of those culture shaping yeah. institutes. You know, there's this great book uh, by James Davidson Hunter called To Change the World, where he basically says, hey, we're going about as Christians, we're going about world change all wrong. He says the common view is bottom up, you know, change enough individual lives and eventually you'll change the culture, you know. But he, he went through and said culture is rarely, if ever, changed bottom up. He said it's always top down where people that exist on the fringe of these culture shaping institutions uh, are able to exert control. Uh, I'm, I'm sorry, exert influence. And that's how culture changes. And, and uh, I think that that's really helpful for us. Like if, and I'm not, so I don't know how culture change, like I don't know how we change culture, but if we, but I do know this, if we're concerned about the plausibility, like we talked about last time and the desirability of the gospel, we've got to be in those institutions where the plausibility and the desirability is, 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 um, formulated and developed. Yeah. And that's why we have to, for some of us, not for all of us, we have to affirm those who are called to the academy. We have to, and who are Christians. We have to affirm those who are called to be artists and Christians. We have to affirm those who are called to government and, and, and politics and so on. Um, because otherwise we, you know, cede that dialogue to the secularist or, you know, uh, to others. And we don't even have yeah. a, a place at the table. Absolutely. So we have about four minutes left, and, you know, I want to finish with this, you know, what you presented of, you know, even if we do this, it's not necessarily going to be perfect because uh, there are things that are blocking people from Jesus and the gospel, right? That there are both internal and external blocks or barriers uh, uh, keeping people from seeing Jesus. And obviously there's ways that we go about it and doing what we do kind of helps remove those barriers. Uh, but, but can you maybe take our last few minutes and, and talk about uh, the difference in what are internal and external barriers to keep people from seeing Jesus that we need to know about and how to relate to those? Yeah, yeah, that's good. Um, so in the book, I'm unpacking, uh, I begin by looking at Paul at, at Mars Hill and how he engaged those not like him. Basically, he was Jewish and he's engaged in the Greek mindset. So how do we engage a culture not like our own? He does it brilliantly. Um, he walks the plank of reason. He walks the plank of the imagination, quoting a poet and, and philosophers from their culture. Uh, you know, he's living a life, walking the plank of conscience. Uh, and then he's addressing bar barriers along the way. And, and so the model that I unpack is that we basically need to be like Paul. We need to understand our culture. We need to build a bridge to Jesus and the gospel from our culture. And then we need to unpack, uh, I'm sorry, address barriers along the way. And so I talk about two kinds of barriers. Some are internal. Those are barriers that have to do with us Christians that we need to get our own house together. And some are external, meaning that they're out there in culture that we need to learn, be ready to respond to. Internally, the three that I, I talk about and the ones I'm most concerned with are three. Um, number one, anti-intellectualism that is rampant in the church. And so the call you know, just to encourage us to, to, to love God with our minds and all of our being, as God, as Jesus says in the great commandment. The second internal barrier that, uh, that we've got to get a, a grasp on is this fragmentation. You know, in many ways, we're just as fragmented as our non-believing neighbor. Mm -hmm. Yet God has called us to be set apart and to be different, to be holy. And so seeking and pursuing Christ and wholeness would be something that's internal. And then the third thing, I call it rebaptizing the imagination. I know we didn't talk a lot about it, but just the idea of learning to see and delight in the world the same way that Jesus does. And so there's a whole mm. important piece, and that's part of what the future books that I'm working on is related to that. And then in terms of the external, real quickly, 
you know, just thinking through what are the what are the obstacles or objections that are out there right now in your culture? So in the book, I unpack four. You know, in 20 years, they might be different. But the big, big yeah. idea is, you know, whatever it is that are keeping people from Christ, we've got to be up to speed on those. Uh, and that, and we do and we love others in being up to speed with those so that we can address them with truth and do it in grace and in love. Yeah. And, you know, uh, interview I did with Frank Turk not long ago, someone wrote in a question for him and, huh. and pretty much was just very upset by the anti-intellectualism in oh, the church and wanted to know what Frank's thoughts were on that and how to respond. And you, you talked about really getting people to understand, to love God with their mind. In our last maybe 30 seconds of, you know, how, how would you encourage those listening to truly love God with their mind? I would say realize that part of what it means to be an apprentice of Jesus Christ is to embrace uh, the life of the mind. And that means that in everything that we do, in everything that we re read, you know, when we study the molecule, you know, you're studying, uh, you know, ask yourself, what do we learn about the God of the molecule? You know, when you read uh, a great work of literature, ask, how do you hear the voice of God in this literature? Uh, and so on. Uh, so it's just um, seeing everything as gift. And, and uh, you know, making Christ as Lord of all, including our minds, which is, of course, hard work, but it's part of what it means to be a follower of Christ. That's so good. Uh, Paul, where can they go to find more about your books, your writing, your blogs, and where you're speaking and traveling to? Yeah, um, you can go to, I've got a website, a couple websites, paul-gould.com. You can keep up with uh, books and happenings there. Uh, TwoTaskInstitute.org is a website for an organization that I work with as well. Uh, and those would probably be the two places. You fi find me on Facebook, find me on Twitter. You can follow me. I'll friend you. I'm happy to talk to you at any time. Perfect. Thank you so much. This is just a fascinating conversation. I really appreciate it. Yeah, thanks. Thanks for having me on, Ryan. Dr. Paul Gould on his book, Cultural Apologetics. And as always, if you've enjoyed the show today, please give it a rating on your podcasting app and share it with a friend or family member so they can enjoy it as well. Also, make sure you send in those questions and comments. Follow all the things that are happening. Get that personal interaction. You can do so at facebook.com slash coffeehousequestions, Twitter or Instagram at ryanpauly3. Text in your questions at 714-989-6927 or even email them in at contact at coffeehousequestions.com. Thank you all so much for listening. Check out the Patreon page to support the work of this ministry and all that God is doing. Thank you so much. God bless. Sip coffee. Think deeply. This is Coffeehouse Questions with Ryan Pauly.